0: unknowingly then he goes to his wedding and this feast is going to last for 7 days that was the custom of the Philistines a 7 day long wedding feast and Samson is a bit of the life of the party he's the bit of he's a funny guy he likes giving riddles and poems and he likes being the life of the party so he tells the 30 young Philistine men that are there i'm going to give you a riddle and if you can guess my riddle after the seven days of this wedding feast, if you can give me the answer to the riddle, then I will give you 30 changes of garment. I will give each of you linen garments. But if you cannot give me the answer to the riddle, then you will have to give me 30 changes of clothing. And so the the Philistines trap his would-be, his soon-to-be wife, and they tell her, If you don't get the answer to the riddle that he tells us, then we are going to burn you down in your father's house and we're going to kill you and your father. And so she's very frightened, obviously, 30 men in her city that are threatening her life. And so she begins batting her eyes at Samson. She begins putting it on him and saying, Oh, you don't love me at all. If you won't tell me the answer to your riddle, you must not care for me at all. And he says, I've never told anybody the answer to the riddle. Why would I tell you? I haven't even told my parents. And she continues and continues day after day. And finally, the last day of the wedding, he tells her the answer. And she very quickly runs to the Philistines and tells them the answer to the riddle. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? How could they have known the answer to his riddle? How could they have known that he was talking about the lion carcass and the honeycomb Well, they couldn't have? He's playing with them. And so, Samson gives the best comeback response, I believe, in all the Bible. He tells them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Pretty strong words. He's very poetic. He gives two poems. They each have three Hebrew words, each line. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And if you had not plowed with my heifer you would not have found out my riddle. Three Hebrew words in each line. And of course, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him at the end of the chapter, and he does not go kill those 30 men. He goes to a neighboring Philistine city, kills 30 men, takes their linen clothes, and he's true to his word. He pays back the men who solved his riddle, even though he knows that they only solved it by cheating, and he gives them their clothing. But at the end uh, of chapter 14, verse number 20 says, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. This chapter brings us to the continuation of that story. We're going to find fiery foxes and a donkey jaw. First we'll see Samson's return in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at Judges 15 verses 1 through 3. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall not be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. This is Samson's return. Well, apparently there is still, in modern times, a custom, a type of marriage in the the Middle East, where one will take a wife, you know, it it is their custom to have more than one, and one will take a wife, and that wife will remain in the household of their father. And the husband will come bearing gifts, and they will do things that married people do, and then he will leave. And, but she remains in her home. And it seems to be, many scholars believe, that this is the understanding that Samson had. This is a custom that happened in ancient times, and one that still you can find today in the Middle East. So Samson is a bit shocked to come home. Well, come to his would-be wife's home and to find out that she is now married not to him but to his best man, the best man of his wedding. So he comes bearing a gift. It's almost as if he's saying, "I'm sorry, I called you a heifer. So here's a goat. Here's a goat. I'm sure that'll make it make it better than calling you a heifer." His father, his father says, or her father says, I've already given away your bride, but isn't her younger daughter much prettier than she is? You can have her instead. Can you imagine being the young woman who is there at the house and hears her father saying, please take my younger sister, after all, my younger daughter, after all, she's much more beautiful than my older daughter. As I said before, there are many lessons for young men from the story of Samson. Uh, One lesson, although it might be comical, is when you leave in anger, it's probably best to come home with a gift. Um, Just good advice. Not necessarily biblical, but good advice. Come home with a gift. So he brings home a a goat. But one, one other lesson that I think is maybe a little bit more useful for young men is that it seems as if Samson believes that he could storm off in rage and then just come back home and expect everyone to accept him exactly like things were before isn't that a common theme I don't know if you have experienced this with particularly young men that have no self-control of their anger or their rage, sadly not just young men, but men in general, they can rage and then expect to return home and their wives or their young children or their families to accept them as if nothing happened. We see here this character flaw of Samson is being amplified. We're seeing that it's affecting more areas of his life. And that is his lack of self control. Some of the early church fathers called temperance this self control. They called temperance the mother of all virtues. The mother of all virtues. Temperance, self control, the ability to have self discipline. Not to react in rage and anger, but to control yourself. You cannot storm off in anger kill 30 men that she might have known and then expect to just come home and things be exactly the way that you left them that's not how the world works Samson I want you to think about the way that self the lack of self-control the lack of temperance may affect your life and may affect my life the prison system is full of people that have absolutely no temperance they have no self-control men and women if you find people that have no self-control, no control over their mind, no control over their body, no control over their thoughts, no control over their passions and their emotions and their anger, this leads to a life of, of a lifestyle that people are typically more prone to things like substance abuse, alcohol, drugs. No self-control means that if you see something and you don't have the money to pay for it, well, it's likely that you'll reason in yourself that you must have it, and so you just take it. Let's define temperance. It has been said that temperance is the spirit empowered ability to control your appetites, emotions, and attitudes. The spirit empowered ability to control your appetites, emotions, and attitudes. If you think about this mother of all virtues, why did the early church call? temperance, the mother of all virtues. Well, if you think about forgiveness, what is forgiveness but the self-control not to react in anger and exact vengeance, but to instead offer forgiveness for wrongdoing? What is patience but the self-control to wait until the right time for something? What is loving kindness but the self-control to put others' needs above your own needs? That is why they called it the mother of all virtues. Self-control, temperance. Young people, the Lord wants to work in you temperance and self-control. If you remember last week, we saw Samson as a a raging hormone of a man that had no control over his thoughts, no control over his eyes, no control over his mind. And we're going to find chapter after chapter. That lack of temperance leads him to destruction, time time. And time again. There was an ancient Greek philosopher named Democritus who said, throw moderation to the wind and you will find that the greatest pleasures bring the greatest pains. Is it any surprise that our culture who has thrown moderation to the wind mirrors the life of Samson perfectly? We now have an epidemic of overeating. I mean, you think of human history. You think of one thing, one thing that has plagued humans forever is the lack of sustenance. Not being able to provide food for your family. People dying of starvation. And we've created a nation where people are not dying from starvation, they're dying from overeating the opposite of temperance the opposite of self-control over indulgence doctors now tell us that diseases such as certain types of heart disease certain types of cancer type 2 diabetes some leading causes of death are now being caused not just from hereditary issues although some of those can be not just from things that happen to people but from a lifestyle of overindulgence of food and of intake into the body, of not being able to control our desire for food. It shouldn't surprise us when our culture has been preaching this gospel of if it feels good, then do it, for decades and decades that we find in public schools. Instead of passing out Bibles and prayer, they're passing out condoms and birth control. Because we cannot fathom teaching our youth temperance and self-control and self-discipline and abstinence. Instead, we try to mitigate the risks with sex ed classes. When I was in high school, it was offered to seniors. I remember in the public school, they were passing out boxes. And I remember that was shocking to many. And now, it's making its way into middle schools. 30%, that is 3 in 10 teenage girls will get pregnant in America this year. 3 in 10 under the age of 18. And of those, 90% of them are getting pregnant outside of marriage. So there's a very small percentage of them that are actually married and getting pregnant. But 90% of those 3 in 10 are getting pregnant outside of marriage. We have tossed moderation and self-control to the wind and we're finding that the greatest pleasures can bring the greatest pains. This mother of all virtues, temperance, is going to plague Samson. And I hope that you can, as we're reading through his story, identify this character flaw that brings him, sure, it brings him pleasure for a season, but it ends in his destruction his destruction is imminent it's coming it's soon let's look let's continue in verse number four so Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and when he said set fire to the torches he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the sacked grain and, and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that I will quit. And he struck them, hip and thigh, with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. (coughs) Here we find Samson's revenge. Well, if you weren't careful when we were reading the story, many times we read through this and we just glance through the details as if this is not a supernatural event. Look at verse 4. So Samson went and caught 350. 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put the torches between each pair of tails it's almost as if it's just something that he did in one afternoon you know he just he's caught 300 foxes i don't know if you've ever tried to catch a fox but they're known for being sly they're known for being uh, for not wanting to be caught i don't know if you've ever tried to tail uh, tie their tails together but i know that that's not something that they would want to have done to them and I know for sure that if you light a fire and you have a campfire going, it's a good way to deter them. So not only do you catch 300 foxes, absolutely impossible to do. No way that anyone could do that without the Spirit of the Lord being upon them to do that. No, no mention of traps or anything like that. He caught them is what the text says. And he didn't catch 20 or 30 of them, which would be impossible enough. He caught 300 of them. Now, why, why is this his plan? To catch 300 fiery foxes? Well, the first verse gives us a clue. It says, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest. At the time of wheat harvest. Now, when you, pass, when you come into Hilliard, if you're coming from Callahan, I suppose there might be a sign uh, coming from in as well, but if you're coming from Callahan, I know I've passed it, and it says Hilliard, and there's a picture of an airplane. I think there's a picture of some logging trucks. And many of you maybe have been employed by the FAA. Uh, many of you are bloggers and, or have families that are in that industry, and that's because Hilliard has been known for those, those industries. Those industries have kept Hilliard going. Um, many families in Hilliard going for many generations. The industry that the Philistines were known for was their wheat harvest. And so when, when Samson torches their fields, and not just at any time of the year, but at the time of the year when they were going to be reaping their harvest that they had been working for the entire year before, he is attacking the foundation of their economy. Now, why does he trap foxes and tie them tail to tail and put a torch? Wouldn't it seem to do the same thing if they just if he just caught a fox and tied a torch to its tail? Because it's going to want to run away from that fire. Why did he? Why? What was his plan to tie two together? The only thing that I was able to uh, reason together is perhaps that he believe that if you tie two together that they're going to strive against each other and want to go in opposite directions to get away from each other and wanting to get away from the fire that's in between them and so perhaps going through the fields they're going to go in as more of a zigzag pattern instead of just run a straight line away and whenever they're resisting against each other there might be more time that the fire would be still and less of it running, more of a chance that more of the field would catch fire because it's standing still in a place for a longer time. Maybe that's his plan. I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe you have a suggestion of why he would come up with his plan to tie two foxes together and put a torch in between them. He is striking at the heart of the Philistine economy and they are not going to take this blow lightly. Imagine if... Some neighboring Callahanians, is that what they're called? Came and torched the FAA Center and tore down our logging trucks. I think, I think Jared would be ready to fight. Tore down their economy. They're not happy about this. The sad thing is that what started all of this was this riddle that Samson gives. And what Samson's wife is avoiding, what her father's family is avoiding, is to be burned with fire in their house. And that is exactly the fate that they find. What they were trying to, what she was trying to avoid by deceiving her husband is the fate that finds her. They burn her and her father with fire. And Samson continues his revenge. He goes and he, he kills them all, hip and thigh, with a great blow. And then he goes to hide in Judah. We're going to find, let's continue the story in verse number 9. He goes and hides in a neighboring, remember, Samson is a Danite. He's from the tribe of Dan. He's not from Judah. And yet this is where he goes to hide. We're going to find Samson's rampage in verse number 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? they said we have come up to bind samson to do to him as he did to us notice that this is the morality of the philistines this is the philistines core value this is why that they are driven to do what they're doing we're going to do to him what he did to us remember that core value that morality that they're showing let's continue We have to bind Samson to do to him what he did to us. Verse number 11. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand, and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And so did you catch that when the Philistines give their definition of morality, their reasoning for running after Samson, did you catch Samson's reasoning? Judah asked the Philistines, what what are you doing? Why are you attacking us? Well, we're going to repay evil for evil. And so then Judah goes to Samson and they say, Samson, what are you doing? Do you not know that the Philistines are in charge of us? Do you not know that they're the master of us? You're causing us a problem. Why did you do this? And Samson repeats the same morality because he has the very same morality as the Philistines. I am repaying evil for evil. That's what motivates him. When Samson flees to Judah, this changes from a localized personal feud, just Samson versus the Philistines. Now he has elevated this from a personal feud to a national crisis. It's not just Samson and his family involved anymore. Now the Philistines are after a neighboring tribe, the Judites. But again, we, we must ask ourselves, what is Judah doing here? They have 3,000 men that they're ready to bind Samson with. Why aren't they going to Samson and saying, Hey, lead us. You can pretty much take all of them yourselves, but with us 3,000 strong men, we can surely take them with you. Lead us into battle. Rid us of this oppressor. In the name of the Lord, do what the Lord has commanded us to do, and we will follow you. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, We've come because we're cowering and we're afraid. Did you not know that there are our, our oppressors? Did you not know that they're in charge of us? So we're going to bind you with our 3,000 men and give you over to them instead of fight with you. Judah would rather hand over their countrymen with bound hands than to obey the Lord and drive out the enemy. 3,000 of them plus a superman and they're not even willing to face their oppressor. So the question that we must ask ourselves when reading this is, what is it going to take for God's people to face the enemy in the power of the Lord and obey the command of the Lord? So they bind him with new ropes. This is a a hint that the author could have left out, just a minor detail, right? New ropes. But he he gives that for a reason, so that when we're reading, we don't just reason within ourselves ourselves. A lot of liberal readers will read things into the text and uh, read them away, really. No, these are new ropes. These aren't old ropes that were torn. This isn't something that somebody could have just easily... they, They didn't do a trick knot like Houdini and figure out how to get out of it. They caught him and they bound him with new ropes. But notice the language of what happened exactly. Because it doesn't say that with these new ropes... Samson in his strength by the power of the Lord broke these ropes it says that at the right time the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands this is not the doing of a strong man this is only to be attributed to the power of the Lord that has done this for him he finds the fresh jawbone of a donkey. Again, for the second time at least, he is violating his Nazarite vow. Another clue that the author gives, the same word, fresh. This is a fresh jawbone. That means that this donkey has just died recently. He had to grab into a donkey that has recently died and grab this jawbone off of him. Samson is a poet very interesting poetic man and he gives another poem with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps now these this word is the same in hebrew it's the very same hebrew word for donkey and heaps it's spelled exactly the same looks the same same word heaps and donkey he, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey have i struck down a thousand men if you notice in Samson's poem, he gives absolutely zero credit to the one who delivered him, the one who caused the rope to melt off of his hands. He takes this jawbone, slays a thousand men, and the reader must be, we, we have to ask ourselves, does Samson even know that his strength comes from the Lord? Does he, surely he realizes? That this is not his strength alone that is doing this. He goes to they they play the place that they is now called Ramath Lehi. If you noticed in verse 9 it says that he they were encamped in Judah and there was a raid on Lehi. Lehi was the name of the city, but we know that Lehi was named that much later because the word Lehi means jawbone. And so it's likely that the author of Judges Is recalling that city, not because that's what it was named as Samson is there, but because that is what it is named after Samson leaves. It is called Jawbone. And they call that place Ramath-Lehi, which means the hill of the Jawbone, which refers to the hill of the thousand bodies of the Philistines that Samson was able to kill in hand-to-hand combat with a Jawbone. Another impossible task let's continue verse number 18 and find samson's realization and he was very thirsty and he called upon the lord and said you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant again by the hand of your servant and shall i now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised and god split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called Inkhakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Here Samson realizes that he is but a man. The Lord brings him through many supernatural events, many things that can't be explained by human reason or human physical ability ability, such as catching 300 foxes or killing a thousand enemies in hand-to-hand combat with a bone. And yet this Superman is going to die by lack of the most common element that we have, water. Isn't it interesting that God knows exactly how to humble us and to show us that maybe we're not Superman after all. Maybe we don't have it all together. If I can do all of these things and yet I'll die from lack of water, how strong truly am I? But notice, even in Samson's prayer, even at this ending, even in this realization, he has a lack of self-control. He has selfishness. He has self piety, false piety. He says, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. He's naming himself as the one who has brought this. Shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He's acting as if he is very pious. It would be a horrible thing, Lord, for me to fall to these uncircumcised Philistines. And yet, just moments earlier, he cared nothing to marry an uncircumcised Philistine. To be in the greatest union that humans can fall into. In marriage, he was completely willing to marry a Gentile, unbelieving, uncircumcised Philistine. And yet, when it's convenient, in a pious prayer... He prays out to the Lord, don't allow your servant to fall to the hands of an uncircumcised Philistine. See his false piety. Another thing is that he is only interested in his self-preservation. Nowhere up until this point in the life of Samson have we seen him caring anything for Israel as a nation. Anything for even his family, his mother and his father. He is completely self-centered. All of his feuds with the Philistines are personal, personal fights, personal vendettas. What's amazing is the Lord is using this. The Lord is using this in a mighty way because God can use our personal failures, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our sin, and he can use those for his purposes. I think there's two lessons in closing in this chapter, two main lessons that we find from the life of Samson. These lessons are going to be continued through the rest of his life as well. The first one is the lesson of self-centeredness and temperance. Has the Lord brought you to a place that you've realized that you cannot allow your mind to run on its own And that that will only end in destruction. When a young man has no self-control, he's going to end in destruction. We see that time and time again in our lives. The second lesson that we find with Samson is this idea that he is a lone wolf. And Christian, there are no lone wolf Christians. Samson is supposed to be a deliverer of Israel. He's not supposed to be fighting personal battles. He's not supposed to have a personal agenda. But he's supposed to have an agenda from the Lord for the nation of Israel. And yet he's running as a lone wolf. I wonder if you and I have been more captured by our rugged individualism as Americans than we have been to our Christianity. Let Let me explain what I mean by that is our American Christianity mostly individual or is it mostly corporate in our Christianity in our day-to-day life do we view ourselves as individual Christians that answer to God that I can be alone with my Bible and know God alone and I have no need for the Church of Christ And that my religion, my Christianity, is primarily about me and my walk with God. Or, as Christians throughout the ages have believed, is my Christianity corporate? I think I know what you believe because you're here on a Sunday night. Obviously you believe that you need something for the church or you wouldn't be here. Let me encourage you. Our rugged individualism in America has built very strong a strong work ethic it's engraved in us many many good things but one thing I fear that it's done to the harm of the church is that we've created a generation that believes that they can be alone with God they can read their Bible and they can pray alone in their closet and they can be just as close to God as any person that goes to church on Sunday and friends that is not Christianity That is not the religion that Jesus Christ founded. We have called to a holy religion of corporate uh, worship, not just merely private worship. And please don't hear me downgrade or downplay the importance of private worship. Please don't hear that. But please hear an emphasis on the importance of corporate worship. God doesn't have lone wolf Christians. He doesn't have lone wolf children We're called to come together each Lord's Day. We're called to come together so that we can unite our voices in praise to our God. We're called to come together so that we can partake in the supper, God's family supper, together. We can bring our children and bring our loved ones to receive baptism together. You don't do that at home, alone, in your pool. You don't partake in the Lord's table alone at home. We come together so that we can receive by faith the preaching of God's Word so that God's Spirit can be poured out upon us and He can open ears that are deaf. He can open eyes that are blind so they can hear the Gospel and respond by faith. The Christianity that we've been called to is not an individualistic me and Jesus alone, Christianity. This is the walk that Samson is leading. He's a lone wolf. And even in this story, the Lord is already beginning to change that. Because the Lord in His providence has taken Samson's selfishness and Samson's personal battles and he's involved Judah. He's involved another nation. Now another nation is involved. Couldn't it be that that is God's plan? That that the Lord would wake up His people. That they would cry out for deliverance from their oppressor. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the example that we find in the life of Samson. But We pray that You will chisel away and You will begin to tear apart from our lives the lack of temperance, the lack of self-control, the lack of moderation, the lack of purity. Lord, will You build in us strong young men and strong young women that have discipline, that have self-control, that have temperance, that have purity, so they can avoid the pitfalls that they would otherwise encounter. The pain that could be ahead of them. And Lord, will you drive out from among us this idea of a lone wolf Christian, that we can be alone. What we find is Christians that are alone, are away from the pack, and the enemy seeks to devour and to destroy them. And there is strength in numbers as we unite. Lord, we pray that you will build your church And that you will find us faithful. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.